listening to the Northside Christian Church Sermon Podcast. These teachings are recorded at our weekly Sunday morning gatherings in Springfield, Missouri. For more about our church, service times, and how to connect, visit northsidechristianchurch.net. Hey, Northside, good morning. It's good to see you. You know, uh, I got to share a little bit about our personal life as a family. Uh, because our youngest of four children, uh, Owen, is graduating from high school. He had his last day of classes of high school on Friday, which means pretty much <laughs> there's just been a little bit of emotion uh, in our household. I'm just being honest uh, around the house because of this. Like uh, when my wife was sitting in the car, she was at Kansas Expressway in Norton Road, and she pulled up to the stoplight. And all of a sudden, she saw a little duck with its ducklings crossing Kansas Expressway. It was headed towards the zoo. And at first, there was like concern for the safety of the duck. But some guy jumped out and was helping with that. And then all of a sudden, she's like, there's ducklings. And I don't have any. And the the tears began to flow. I mean, just seeing some ducks. That's what she saw right there. And that just led her into uh, tears that day. I think it maybe was the very next day on Friday. It was the last day, half day for Owen. And... So she got up to make pancakes. She doesn't normally really eat much breakfast, and so we don't really do that. But she got up to make pancakes for the last day. She even put sprinkles in them so it would be celebratory and festive, you know, for the pancakes. But, of course, I walk around the corner into the kitchen, and there were pancakes on the griddle. And, and she's standing there, and she just looks up and sees me, and then she's just like... <laughs> so there we are in the kitchen hugging each other, and she's crying. And uh, we're like, you know, I don't think we want our son on his last day to see us crying. You know, let's... Let's pull it together. So our, our emotions are a little all over the map uh, right now. And, of course, it's not just because of him graduating this week, but our second oldest son, Nathan, he'll be graduating college this week. And then he and his fiancée, Addie, they're getting married at the end of this month. And then they're going to be moving to Phoenix, Arizona, because they're both going to be in a, in a worship residency there at Christ Church of the Valley. And so they're heading out at the beginning of August for that. So that's kind of in the mix as well that brings some a variety of, of emotions into play. And so that's coming into play for sure. And, uh, and then our son Owen is going to be headed to Missouri Southern, and, and he's going to be playing baseball there and going to school there. So we are definitely entering into that, that part of life where they call it the, the empty nest, you know, where you, you, look, you look behind you and there's no ducklings there anymore. And so, you know, life is different and a lot of change and a, a mix of emotions, as I'm sure there are for a lot of you with whatever things you're going through. And, and then you add in the mix of that, our son-in-law's mom who passed away two weeks ago. So we've just been dealing with grief and loss and uncertainty and change and excitement and relief and anticipation and anxiety and joy and sorrow and exhilaration and exhaustion. I mean, it's just, we're, we're just a mess of emotions. I mean, all over the map. And whenever you're going through life change and things are happening, you too have probably experienced all kinds of emotions. But I think it's also appropriate and, in fact, important for us to acknowledge there's one emotion that always tends to come in and try to even hijack the other emotions. One emotion that always ends up revealing itself, showing itself, especially during time of change or uncertainty. It's one that loves to take over the other emotions. And whenever it does, it's an emotion that always leads to a lack of joy, bad decision-making, a loss of vision, a loss of, of leading and making goals for the future. And that emotion is fear. 
It's fear. Fear is that strong emotional response that leads to nervousness, anxiety, and worry. Fear is that biochemical, physical reaction that can result in increased heart rate, faster breathing, shortness of breath, butterflies, digestive changes, sweating, chills, trembling muscles because of hormones that are being released. Fear can be because of of a real threat or a perceived threat. But regardless, fear always has a way of creeping into the most important situations we face, into every moment, every situation, every life change. Fear works its way in. And fear becomes one of the greatest threats that we face. Our graduates from high school and college, they'll face fears with uncertainty about the future, whether that be what it looks like or what they're going to do or how their needs will be met or how they will financially be taken care of. Parents fear losing the closeness that they have with their, in their relationship with their children, the daily personal interactions, losing influence. I think we all fear the future with its unknowns, whether it be lack of known for job security or financial security, even mental security, stability due to an illness or dementia or Alzheimer's, or we fear losing someone who's very special to us. We fear rejection, betrayal, and tragedy, and natural disasters, or car wrecks, or bad business decisions. We fear being alone. We fear being isolated or abandoned, suffering, grieving. We fear that God is not coming through for us. He's not answering or responding in the way that we would want Him to. And and fear just constantly reveals itself. It's not that we should never experience fear. It's a God-given physical, emotional response so that we can respond to dangerous situations appropriately and purposefully. That's not the problem. The problem is when we allow fear to have a voice in our life, a prominent voice in our life, and it will always lead us into negative thinking and destructive behaviors. When we allow fear to have a voice in, in our life, here's what happens. Fear always will lead us to an extreme response, not a faithful response. Fear will lead us to overreact. And overreactions hurt people, verbally, physically, emotionally, over time. Fear leads to cynicism and conspiracies or a desire for control. Fear keeps us from loving people. Instead, we go into self-preservation. Fear leads us to say, what if? What if? It leads us to worst-case scenarios. And so... Fear feeds off the what-ifs, the uncertainties. It undermines good decision-making. It makes us skeptical, selfish, stubborn. We resist change. We resist growth. It makes us critical of others, short-sighted. It doesn't respond to logic. Fear is not productive. It is not inspiring. And this is why over and over and over again throughout Scripture, we hear so many times God saying, do not be afraid. Do not fear. In fact, at least 365 times in Scripture, one for every day of the week, God is saying, do not fear. It appears more than any other command in Scripture. And John Ortberg, in his book, if you want to walk on water, you got to get out of the boat. He asks this question. He says, why does God tell human beings to stop being afraid more often than he tells them anything else? And here's his answer. He says, I think God says fear not so often because fear is the number one reason human beings are tempted to avoid doing what God asks them to do. Fear is the number one reason human beings avoid doing what God has asked them to do. So whatever God asks us to do, whether it's go and make disciples, 
Love your enemies. Give generously. Be kind and compassionate. Forgive one another. Die daily to yourself. Don't be served, but, but serve. Whatever command God gives us, it's fear that keeps us from doing what God wants us to do. And one of the questions I began to think about this week then, I was wrestling with, was this one. What is the number one thing that God wants us to do that we are not doing because of fear? What is that number one thing? And I think it's this. I think it's trust. We are not trusting because of fear. We allow fear to have a prominent voice in our life, and then we are not trusting God. And that leads to sin. Fear is the number one obstacle to trusting in the Lord. Courageous trust. It looks to God. It depends on God. It leans into God in spite of our fears. In spite of those changing circumstances, difficult circumstances, even impossible circumstances, trust leans into God because God wants every fear to be met with faith. He wants every fear to be met with faith. And faith's key components are believing and trusting. Believing and trusting. And I really do believe that David gives us a great example of what this looks like, how you believe and trust in God when you are facing fears. And he does it throughout the Psalms in numerous places, but I want us to look at one today. I think it's a, it's a powerful Psalm. In fact, as you open your Bible or device, I want you to open up to this because we'll read a few of the verses, but you're going to have, you're going to want to read some of this yourself because uh, we won't be able to, you have to skim it as I'm quoting things. But Psalm 27, if you open your Bible and device to Psalm 27, this psalm is called a psalm of individual trust. It's David's individual trust in the Lord. And he needs it because trouble's all around. A crisis is at hand and it's not resolved. It's not gone away. He's in the midst of it. And he declares in this moment his trust in the Lord. And if any person had a reason to fear, it would be David. I mean, all of his life, he was being hunted and chased by enemies from without and other nations and other people, even people from within. I mean, I mean, David had it coming to him. He was always at risk. Terrors faced every day on every side. If he wasn't at war with neighboring nations coming against him, he was hunted by his own people. And yet, this is what David would say. And he says it with confidence. He says it with trust. And I would like for us to say it together as well. And so up here on the screen is Psalm 27. I want us just to begin reading from verse 1 together. I'd like for us to read this out loud together. And David's statement of belief, I want it to be ours. May it be ours today. So let's read it together out loud. Here we go. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? I want us to read that again together. Let's read this together out loud. Do one more time. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? You know, it's interesting that David would ask that question. Whom, whom should I fear? Because I'm thinking, well, David, you could fear Saul. You could fear the enemies. You could fear those coming against you. You could fear the, the ones who are mistreating you and lying to you and coming after you. I mean, there, there's a lot to be afraid of, David. Like a lot. But David says, who, who shall I be afraid? It's not that he's in, in denial. I mean, he knows that there's some people to be afraid of. Like he goes on, he says, when the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. The war break out against me, even then I will be confident. 
Somehow David was able to stare into the face of defeat and death and he was able to do it without succumbing to fear because he saw through those threats. He saw through those threats to a God who had promised to deliver him, a God who had promised to save him. He saw beyond his circumstances to the one that gave him comfort and confidence. Even when it seemed that everything around him was going to be lost, including perhaps his own life, he trusted in God. And one of the questions I think we should look at today is how does David face fear with such trust in the Lord. And I want us just to walk through this text. Just as we read it, let every one of these things that, that he believes become the very thing that we believe so that we too can trust in the face of fear. We got to believe these truths. And here's the first one. Believe. I want you to be able to say, believe the Lord is my Lord. Believe the Lord is my Lord. Everybody say that. Believe the Lord is my Lord. When he begins this psalm, he says, my Lord. In other words, Yahweh God, the self-existing one, is not just Lord and God. David's like, my Lord, my God. How do I face fears with such confidence? Because my Lord, his personal God, his God is so great. Fear will lord itself over you unless you've got a greater Lord. It will grip you unless you have a greater Lord. And David says this, we got to believe this. The Lord is my light. The Lord is my light. Say that. The Lord is my light. When he says light, intellectually light refers to truth. Morally light refers to holiness. Holiness and truth. God gives understanding to David for holiness and for truth. The Lord is my light. We know in the New Testament, since we're New Testament people living on this side of Jesus' death and resurrection, that that Jesus is our light. He is our light. The Apostle John refers to Jesus as the true light that gives light to everyone. He has come into the world to give us light. And we needed that because it wasn't just that the world was dark and in darkness, but we were dark. Like in Ephesians 5, 8, it says you were once darkness. It doesn't say you are in darkness. It says you are. Like you you were darkness because of your sin, because you were separated from God. You were darkness. That's who you are. You weren't just in it. You, You became it. But it says, but now you are light in the Lord. Now you're light in the Lord. Jesus has has made you and brought you into the light. He has redeemed you and given you truth and he's given you righteousness and holiness and he wants to bring you out of darkness into light. Whatever darkness you're in, whether it's the darkness of your sin or it's the darkness that surrounds you, like David, the enemies from without coming against you or even the darkness from within. It could be that depression or something that's gripping you and holding you slave. Jesus came to set you free from that. Craig Rochelle talks about his Craig, he's, a, he's an author, pastor, life church. He, he talks about his friend, Tim. And he talks about how he had a very real fear for his friend, Tim, because Tim was battling depression. And he said he'd be at his house and Tim would leave his house and be driving home and Craig would just have this fear come over him on behalf of his friend, knowing that would he see him again? Would he be alive the next time he saw him because he was battling 
depression and dealing with it and Craig was trying to help him. He was afraid he was going to take his life. And Tim says that, or Craig said that later in talking to Tim, Tim, Tim said that the only thing that got him through that deep period of darkness in his life was Jesus. When Tim was in the darkest of dark, he didn't give up. He, he just didn't give up, even though he was struggling. He kept trusting in Jesus to bring him out of the darkness into the light. And Craig says, let me tell you some things that Tim did. He went to counseling. He goes, that helped a little bit. And he tried some different medicines, some different medication that actually helped him a little bit. And he became a prayer warrior. He began to pray, and that helped him quite a bit. And he changed his diet, and that helped some. And he started exercising, and that actually helped some. And he didn't just attend life group. He actually started a life group and started investing in other people and serving people through his life group. And that, that helped some. And he began daily renewing his mind in the word of God so that the truth of God's word would speak louder than the lies he kept hearing from the darkness. And Craig said, Tim would tell you today that that depression that he was in, years of fighting through it, he doesn't feel that anymore. He's not in that funk anymore. And Tim said to Craig, he said, your emotions are valid, but they're not permanent. Your situation feels hopeless, but with God, there's always hope. That in our darkest moments, we can know that Jesus is our light and he makes us light. He brings us out of the darkness into the light. And not only that, but he does that so that we can live in the light. We can live as children of light. That's what Ephesians 5, 8 goes on to say. It says, live as children of the light. For the fruit of light consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth. There it is, holiness and truth. That's, that's what our light consists of. That's what Jesus has done for us. He is our light so we can live as children of the light. You've got to believe that, that the Lord is your light. That the Lord is my Lord. And that he is your light. And then David goes on, he said this, you got to believe the Lord is my salvation. He is my salvation. Everybody say that. The Lord is my salvation. That's what he is. That salvation that David was celebrating, he's celebrating a, a Lord who saves. I mean, he's, he, he knew it whenever God led the Israelites out of Egypt into the promised land. And in fact, when they went into the promised land with Joshua, the name Joshua, their leader meant the Lord saves. The Lord saves. That's the, the Lord that he is talking to. David believed all the threats that he faced, they were nothing. They were nothing in light of the God who was for him. And as you read Psalm 27, you realize that David believed that God was his salvation, not just in the present life, that God would save him through whatever circumstance he was in, but he was his salvation forever. That he would, he would live with the Lord forever. He was his salvation now and for eternity. And look, what that means for us the fact that Jesus is our salvation, it means the greatest horror, your greatest fear of living for eternity separated from God in the guilt of your sin, being judged by God and going to hell because you were guilty. That fear, and it should be a real fear. I mean, Jesus said, don't fear those that can kill the body. Don't fear mankind that can kill the body. Fear the one who has the power not only to kill the body, but throw your soul into hell. Fear him. 
Like you, like you have a reverent fear for God that surpasses any fear for man. For God is far greater. But the fear of going to hell, that's not how God wants us to live. That's why Jesus came. That's why he, he, he paid the price for our sins on the cross to set us free from our sins. He came to set us free for life so that we could be saved. Jesus came so that we might have life. He didn't come to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. These are Jesus' own words. He came to save us, to be our salvation, so that the biggest, scariest, most intimidating, longest-lasting terror was turned away from us. It was destroyed. That crisis was averted through the blood of Jesus. That guilt has been removed. The God of the universe, he's satisfied. He's vindicated. So we no longer need to fear, for he will save his people from their sins. If if he'll save us from our sins and How much more is he going to bring us all the way to glory? That's what Romans says. So we believe that the Lord is our salvation. Believe that. Don't live in fear. Believe the Lord is your salvation. Believe the Lord is your light. Believe the Lord is your Lord. And then there's this, David said, believe that the Lord is my stronghold. Believe the Lord is my stronghold. Everybody say that. The Lord is my stronghold. These are the words of David, his prayer, crying out to God in a moment of fear. You're my light. You're my Lord. You're my salvation. You are my stronghold. You are a strong defense for me. You are my strong. How big is your God? How could David dare say, what should I be afraid of? It's because he knew how big his God was. Do you believe that God is your stronghold? Because fear whispers to us that God is not really big enough to take care of us or to save us or to carry us. Fear distorts the way we think about God and makes him much smaller than he really is. That's what fear does. That's why fear is a destroyer of faith. It's why fear will keep you from experiencing every good gift that God wants to give you in your life. Because fear distorts the size of our God. And when we're facing fear, we need to look at the size of our God and say, my Lord is my stronghold. That's who he is. He is almighty, all-powerful. He's the Alpha and Omega. Ephesians 6.10 says, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. He is almighty God. He is sufficient for everything. And when you see that size of God, then no matter what you face, you can ask the same question that David asked. Whom shall I fear? Of whom shall I be afraid? Obviously, the answer, the implied answer is no one, nobody. And you're like, how can you say that, David? How can you possibly say that? I mean, there there are people all around us, the enemies, the foes surrounding us that could do all kinds of harm to us. Well, David, he's not in denial here. I mean, look what he says in verses 2 and 3. When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. The war break out against me. Even then, I will be confident. David's got wicked people, enemies, foes all around him. The army's encamped against him. War is about to break out. It's on the horizon. And he has a temptation to fear and to let it overwhelm him. But instead, he has confidence in the Lord because he sees the size of his God. He's my stronghold. He's my strength. The Lord is my light. The Lord is my salvation. The Lord is my stronghold. Whom shall I fear? David writes these words. It's a song. He sings these words. He prays these words. It's a prayer. That's what the Psalms are. 
He sings these truths when fear was rising up in his heart. And if we, like David, would pray these words and sing these words when fear is rising up in our hearts, it will remind us why we have good reason to not be afraid, but instead to be encouraged. It'll quiet our fears, quiet the intimidation, as we see just how big our God is. And he holds us, and he's got us, and he will carry us all the way to glory. We can trust him. We're going to lean into him no matter what we go through, no matter what we face, no matter how hard it gets. We've got to believe he's our stronghold, and he is our light. He's our salvation. Here's something else you need to believe. You need to believe that the presence of the Lord is my greatest need. The presence of the Lord, that's my greatest need, to be in his presence. David's deepest desire, he says, here's how he says it, only one thing I ask. Then he goes on to ask about a bunch of other stuff. So you're like, wait, I thought you said there's only one thing that you ask. Kind of like your prayers, right? God, just one thing and one more thing and one more thing. But here's what it is. I I really do think David is saying, here's the most important thing, God. Of everything I would come to you with, of everything I would ask, here's the number one thing. It's found in verses 4 through 5 of Psalm 27. And he's not asking for safety or military dominance or prosperity. Here's what he wants. The number one thing David wants is he wants God. He wants God. He wants to dwell in the presence of God every single day. All the days of his life, he just wants God. He wants him. He wants his glory. He wants to be near him. He wants to seek him. He wants to be satisfied with God's glory. Here's how he says in verses 4 through 5, One thing I ask from the Lord, this this only do I seek. So maybe we should say it this way. The, The most important thing I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me high upon a rock. He wants to be in the presence of God and in the presence of his glory. And he has talk of sacred tent. It says temple. Solomon's temple wasn't even built yet, but it means a sacred place. He wants to be there in the presence of God all the days of his life. He wants to dwell there, live there. I would like for you to dwell, to live in the presence of God all the days of your life. It's in the embattled, desperate moments of our Christian life when our felt needs can be so focused on being delivered from whatever particular troubles we're dealing with. It is helpful to have these words to remind us in this moment that the only ultimate necessary thing that we need is to be in the presence of the Lord. That means with every breath that we have in this life and for all of eternity, we will spend it in his presence, gazing in the beauty of the Lord, both in this life and in the one to come. And that's what God wants. He wants you to trust him when his presence is with you. I think a a great picture of this is when Jesus is with the disciples and they were in the boat. It's it's recorded for us in Matthew chapter 8 and other gospel accounts. Mark has it as well, but they're... They're going across the Sea of Galilee when Mark's account says they were hit by a squall. That is intense, sustained wind that has sunk many a ship. And the waves were intense on the Sea of Galilee. 
Their, their boat was being threatened to be tipped over. It was being swamped with water. These experienced fishermen were frightened for their life. Jesus is in the back of the boat, the stern of the boat, and he's asleep on a cushion, completely exhausted from ministry. There's probably some other things that are going on there. We, we, if we had time, we could talk about. But he's in the boat. The storm is raging, and the disciples go back, and they shake him and wake him up and say, Jesus, don't you even care if we drown? I mean, that's usually our first response when life seems to be falling apart around us is, do you even care, God? I don't know why, but that's where we go in our minds. And they, Do you even care that we drown? to Jesus. And Jesus is awakened by them. And as he's waking up from this deep sleep, there's a squall going on. And the first words out of his mouth, the first words right here, you of little faith. (laughs) It's still going like the storm hasn't stopped. It's just raging around him. He's like, you of little faith. Why are you so afraid? Then he got up, rebuked the wind and the waves, and it went completely still and silent. And then they were really afraid with an appropriate fear of the one in whose presence they were standing. And so Jesus in this moment says, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? Well, because we thought we were dying But in that moment, Jesus didn't want them just to come to him in their time of need. They did that. He wanted them to trust him. Trust him in the most horrific of situations. You would trust him. And I think it's pretty easy for us in hindsight where we are, where we're sitting, you're like, yeah, this, I mean, you got Jesus in your boat. Come on, guys. Come on, does that, Jesus is in your boat. What do you think was going to happen? You know, it's easy for us to say that. You had Jesus with you. And I think the disciples peering from the balcony of heaven are looking down at us going, are you kidding me? You know more than we ever knew. You know Jesus died, resurrected, ascended back to heaven. You know exactly who he is. We were still getting that figured out. And he told you he is with you and will never leave you or forsake you, that he's with you right now. I mean, who has the advantage here? Jesus is with you. God is with you. Emmanuel, God with us. It's in these moments that we should have trust in him. That's what he longs for is that we would trust him, that his presence is with us. And that we would trust him through whatever we go through, whatever we face. The disciples did not have that kind of trust in Jesus yet on that boat. And you know what? Maybe you don't either while you're sitting in this seat or watch, listening online. Maybe you don't have that trust either. But here, So here's what I want to do. I, I don't want to just come super, super hard down on you like that we don't ever struggle with this. We do and, and we will because even David did. Like you come to verse 7 and it's kind of a transition here where David starts to struggle a little bit. He comes out of the gate with such confidence. And then in verse 7, he suddenly feels concerned that maybe God doesn't want to answer him. And concerned, maybe God is angry with him. And that's sometimes how we feel too. When we feel embattled and in our desperate moments, when our emotions are not in sync with our beliefs, 
when what we feel doesn't seem to line up with what we know to be true from what God says, in these moments of disparity, in these moments of struggle, it's okay to tell God. David does. He uses his words as a prayer, a song, to the one who understands exactly what we're experiencing and is inviting him to come to him, to trust him, to rely on him. That's what he does. David sings. He makes music. He, he writes his prayer to lead him into deeper intimacy with God. And so beginning in verse 7, he starts making some requests. So you're, you're like, I thought you said one thing. Well, here's some more, but that one thing's most important, but these two. And so he says here in verse 7, hear me. Hear my voice, Lord, when I call. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Hear me. And then David says in verse 10, help me. Lord, you've been my helper. Then verse 11, he says, teach me. Teach me your way, Lord. Teach me your way. I I don't know how to go through this. Teach me. And then David says, lead me. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors, my oppressors that are coming around me. Lead me. And then he says, protect me. Do not turn me over to the desire of my foes for false witnesses are coming up against me. God, hear me. Help me. Teach me. Lead me. Protect me. Here David is. Entrusting himself to the Lord. He's my light. He's my stronghold. He's my salvation. He's my Lord. But also he's crying out for him to hear him and to lead him, to teach him through this thing. I mean, here David, David is a warrior. He is a soldier. He is a mighty warrior. He's the anointed king. This is who David is. And he's crying out to God saying, teach me your way. And John Bloom, who serves as a teacher and co-founder of Desiring God, he said this about this point right here. He says, you know what? Soldiers, that's what David is. He's a soldier. He said, soldiers don't learn to fight in the classroom. They learn about fighting in the classroom. That's not really where you learn to fight. Now, you need the classroom. They're all going to go through the classroom. You need that. But it's not until you actually fight. It's not until you're in that moment, you're in the heat of the moment, it's not until you are starting to fight that you actually learn how to fight. And I think where that comes into play for all of us is as disciples of Jesus, it's the same way. Learning about trusting in Jesus, learning about what it means to walk by faith, that's not where you really learn how to trust and walk by faith. Me talking about it, telling us about it, that's not what's actually going to help us trust him in these moments. It's going to be when we actually do it, go through it. That's where we learn how to walk by faith. That's where we learn to trust God. When we say, God, teach me your ways, those lessons don't come in the classroom. They, they come in the chaotic, disorienting, disturbing, desperate violence of the field of the spiritual battle that we're in, where we encounter the internal and external opposition and foes that we are fighting and up against, the obstacles, the problems that are too complex and difficult for us. The ones where it's, it goes far beyond the strength that we have like 2 Corinthians 1.8, where we, we can even at times begin to despair of life itself. It's in those desperate places that we, like David, learn what walking by faith really means, where God teaches us his way. Most of David's psalms are desperate psalms, prayers of deliverance. In the face of assassination, in the face of spiritual depression, in the face of foes coming from the outside and within. And I just think for David, I just don't think he probably envisioned his life going this way. 
Did he expect to live most of his life with a target on his back? Did he expect to plead with God this often for his survival? Did he intend or expect that at times he would feel forsaken by God? Did he expect to weep so much? The bewilderment, the fear, the sorrow that David expressed in many of his psalms lead us to think that trusting God proved far harder than he expected. But it was in these crucible moments, these very hard situations where David learned to really trust God. He learned really how to pray, really how to worship, even in the face of fear. It was through that that his trust in God grew. And so if we want to really follow Jesus and learn his ways, if we really want to walk in a way that is worthy of the manner of the Lord, which is to walk by faith and not by sight. How should we expect God to teach us? It's going to come not from the classroom, but it's going to come in the field of the spiritual battle where the conflict is more chaotic and disturbing and disorienting and frightening and depressing when fear is really at the forefront of your mind. It begins to come against you. It creeps its way into those thoughts. It wants to own you. It wants to distract you. It wants to distort the truths you know about God. And it's in those moments that we, like good soldiers, like true disciples, we're really learning how to fight. We're learning how to trust Him, how to face our fears. And when that happens, our goal is that we would declare a faith-filled statement just like David did at the end of this psalm. It's Psalm 27, 13 through 14. This is David's faith-filled statement in the face of fear. This is why he has hope in the face of fear. And it's on the screen here. I want us just to read this together. And I, I want us, as we read it, to make it our prayer. God, let this be true of our thoughts and, and our heart as well. So let's read it together. You ready? I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. Let's read it again. I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait the Lord. The reason this is so important is because not only is this a declaration of trust by David, and not only does he believe he will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I think when he says it, I think he means in in this life, he's going to see the goodness of the Lord play out here. But he tells us to wait. And then to be strong and take heart and wait. Why is he telling us that twice? I think it's because of this. It's in the wait when fear's voice becomes the loudest. When there's uncertainty and you're waiting and it's not happening. When you don't know how, how this is going to unfold and you don't know why and you don't know how and where, whatever. It's in the wait when the voice of fear becomes deafening. So be strong. Take heart. Remain confident in the wait. Remain confident that you'll see the goodness of the Lord. Trust Him. Don't give up faith. See the goodness of the Lord. And the good news for us is because we're in Christ, 
we can believe this too. Because when you think of the land of the living, David probably meant this life, but for us, where's the land of the living? I mean, some people think of this as the land of the living, and when we die, we go to the land of the dead. But really, this is the land of the dying, and when we die, we go to the land of the living, right? It means you're going to see the goodness of the Lord all the rest of the days of your life. If you'll wait. You don't see it every day. You don't see it in every moment. But wait. Be strong. Trust Him. I'll tell you the hardest part about trust in the wait is everything just hangs in the balance. If you've ever watched trapeze artists doing what they do, and one trapeze artist, he's the, is the flyer, and then someone else is the catcher, and you know, you've seen them kind of come together where the trapeze are doing this, and maybe you've been at the circus and they're coming together, but there is like this gap, right? Like there's this chasm between the two, and for the flyer to be caught, the flyer has to let go. I mean, there's that moment of letting go in order to launch, Letting go in order to leave into whatever that future is going to be. And it's in the wait, when you're not caught yet, it's in the gap that is the most frightening. That's when fear can just seize us and grip us and take control of us. When we're just in midair, holding, waiting for the person to hold on to. It's a pretty good mental image of what it means to live by faith. God wants to work in your life, but to let go of the past in order to grab onto the future, you're going to have to let go. It's the hardest part to do. We often don't want to let go until we have something else we're already firmly holding on to. Then we'll let go. And God says, no, you got to leap to launch. you got to leap to launch. you got to trust me. Trust me in the wait. Trust me in the gap. And the greatest threat that you face to launching into the future that God has for you is fear. Fear has robbed you of joy and vision and goal setting and, and faith. It's, it's because you're not believing God. You're not believing he is who he says he is. You're not seeing him for who he really is. Your fears have allowed a distorted, smaller image of God than he is. You need to believe that the Lord is my Lord. The Lord is my light. The Lord is my salvation. The Lord is my stronghold. And you've got to believe that the presence of God is what you need more than anything else. And then you remain confident and you take to heart And you wait for the Lord and you be strong in the wait, even in your fear. And you will experience the goodness of God. And that is my prayer for you today. And maybe today, if there's some of you listening or some of you in this room and you've not yet made Jesus your Lord. And so you need to believe that he is the Christ and he is God. And you need to repent of your sins and be baptized into Christ. That's how you make him Lord. So you can say you're my Lord. Say, he's my Lord. There's others of you, you just haven't been living like he's the Lord. You've allowed fear to overwhelm you. And today, you need to release it to the Lord. You need to cry out and pray to him just like David did. Hear me. Confess these things. Lord, I believe you are my Lord. You are my light, my salvation, my stronghold. So we have some of our prayer team, and they're coming down here to the sides of the room and, and coming to the front of the stage, and they're here to pray with you, to pray for you. I want to encourage you to go to them today. In fact, just as we're talking about this, let's stand to our feet right now. It's our time to respond. And I want to encourage you to go to someone and let them pray for you. That's what the Psalms are, prayers being lifted up to God. Let them pray over you and let them pray with you and for you. 
And then if you're ready to make Jesus the Lord of your life, or you want to begin a relationship with Jesus, you want to have a conversation, or you want to become a member of this church, I would love to meet with you through those double doors at Decision Point to your right. I would love to meet you right there as we trust in the Lord, as we lean into Him, as we cry out to Him, even in the moments of desperation or fear or doubt, we'll know it's worth it because we'll see the goodness of the Lord. Let's make that our prayer as we sing. Thanks for joining us this morning, Northside. Before you go, make sure you check in and let us know you were here. Text the word CHECK to 417-233-1200. If you want to respond to today's service, you can do that online through Decision Point. If you want to know more about baptism or becoming a member, you can request more info at northsidechristianchurch.net slash decision. This is also the place to find out about our life groups, find out what sort of service opportunities there are, or if you just need to get in touch with a minister. And if you're online, you probably use social media too. Make sure you're following along with Northside on our Facebook page, Instagram account, YouTube channel, or Twitter. We are glad that you chose to join us this morning. As we head out for the week, let's make sure we take the love of God with us. Take good care of each other, Northside.